You're listening to the So What Podcast. So here is the slogan that Arianism flies under. There was a time when he was not, referring to the Son of God. Jesus was a mediatorial creation of the Father, begotten before all ages, but not co-eternal. At some point in the eternal existence of God, before space, time, and the rest of creation had been created, God brought forth his Son, begot his Son, and that they would do the same thing with the Spirit. Welcome to the So What Podcast, where we discuss theological and philosophical issues to ask that obvious question, so what? I'm your host, Kyle Bashirs, and I'm joined by our cast of contributors, Matt O'Reilly, Brad Mills, and Travis Buchanan. On this first of a two-part episode, the crew will discuss Arius and subordinationism. Before we head over to our discussion, again, we'd just like to thank you for listening to So What Podcast and for sharing with your friends. If you enjoy the show, please help our podcast grow by rating and reviewing it in iTunes. You can find out more information about the show and its contributors at SoWhatPodcast.com. Questions about this and any future episode can be submitted by emailing hello at SoWhatPodcast.com. You can keep up with the latest news by following us on Twitter at SoWhat underscore podcast or by liking our Facebook page. Just search for SoWhat Podcast. Well, let's head over to our discussion. Well, gents, today we would like to talk about that famous heretic, Arius, and the idea that came from his school of thought and was very popular, actually, at a point in time in church history of subordinationism. And when we're talking about Arius and subordinationism, uh, we are talking specifically about the dual nature of Christ, the hypostatic union, that he was both fully God and fully man. And as the early church was wrestling with what that meant, Arius steps forward on the scene and he presents a what he probably believed was a solution to the issue, um, but eventually was condemned as heresy. So Arius and subordinationism. I would like to start with a caveat that fourth century Christological debate and the Council of Nicaea and the Council of Constantinople, AD 325 and 381, are some of the most significant declarations, anathemas, and theological developments that the early church saw and became definitive for Christian theology and its development over the next 1,700 years to today. And there are large books, some very good books, actually, that have been written on Arianism and 4th century Christology. And so... I would point the reader toward those. One is written by Rowan Williams, who in 1987 originally called Arius Heresy and Tradition. It's a very important study. Williams later became Archbishop of Canterbury. I want to begin with how Williams begins in his introduction to sort of place a context on this very large debate and its many significant implications for the development of Christian theology and Christology in particular, or the doctrine of Christ. 
So Williams writes, Arianism has often been regarded as the archetypal Christian deviation, something aimed at the very heart of the Christian confession. From the point of view of history, this is hardly surprising. The crisis of the fourth century was the most dramatic internal struggle the Christian church had so far experienced. It generated the first creedal statement and claim universal unconditional assent, and it became inextricably entangled with issues concerning the authority of political rulers in the affairs of the church. Brief pause in the quotation. So something else intertwined with this century is Constantine and his conversion to Christianity and his desire to unite the empire um, conveniently now through this mm -hmm. new popular religion uh, that had prior been persecuted. So there's a, a strong political dimension to these debates as well. It's not just theological. This is Williams again. Later, it would become similarly entangled with the divisions between Roman and barbarian in what had been the Western Empire. Rome was sacked by Goths, who had adopted what was by then the non-imperial version of the Christian faith. By the time that the great upheavals within the empire were over, Arianism had been irrevocably cast as the other in relation to Catholic and civilized religion. Arius himself came more and more to be regarded as a kind of antichrist among heretics, a man whose superficial austerity and spirituality cloaked a diabolical malice, a deliberate enmity to revealed faith. The portrait is already taking shape in Epiphanius's work, well before the end of the 4th century, and is vividly present in later accounts of the martyrdom of Peter of Alexandria, who ordained Arius deacon. By the early medieval period, we find him represented alongside Judas in ecclesiastical art. The account of his death in 4th and 5th century writers is already clearly modeled on that of Judas in the Acts of the Apostles. No other heretic has been through so thoroughgoing a process of demonization. End quote. So who is Arius and why did he deserve such brutal treatment in the history of the church? It does not sound like he was a popular guy. Well, that's that's interesting because he was quite popular earlier on right. uh, in his ministry, but he obviously becomes vilified before the end of the century in which he dies. And so just a little bit about Arius's background, then just some biographical information. He's probably born in Libya uh, between 260 and 280 A.D., he was a pupil of a man named Lucian of Antioch, most likely. Again, the information we have on Arius is mixed and comes from a variety of sources, but not Arius himself, as other heretics. It's pretty typical, right? The extinction yeah, yeah, yeah. of his work mm -hmm. was uh, seen as a good deed for those who would oppose him. And so most of what we know about Arius and his scant writings come in quotation from Athanasius. Mm -hmm and Orthodox writers his, whose his work opponents. was preserved. Yes, his mortal enemies. But eventually Arius is ordained a deacon, and there is a bishop in Alexandria named Alexander who is Arius's bishop. And Alexander preaches a sermon, and Arius uh, charges Alexander with heresy after that sermon. So this is a priest who is a ruling bishop charging him with heresy. Arius was eventually ordained a priest before this happened. And that ignited a controversy that eventually would involve all of Christianity mm -hmm. in the region in the Roman Empire. And so there's some back and forth. Arius is excommunicated and then received back. And eventually there's an ecumenical council convened, the first in Nicaea in the early summer of 325. And largely through the influence of St. Athanasius, Arius is condemned and his teaching is condemned. But we haven't even talked necessarily yet about what that why, teaching was right. mm -hmm. and why it was seen as anathema. So what's the one-sentence summary of the Arian teaching for our listeners? Yes. Before before we try and do that, 
I will just read what Basil of Caesarea says as he paints a famous picture of the situation of the church in the fourth century. In his De Spiritu Sanctu, uh, Basil asks us to imagine a naval battle. With the fleets fully engaged, a huge storm erupts and darkness falls. The fight is desperate and utterly confused. No one can tell friend from foe, let alone who is winning the battle. The picture Basil paints in this, I'm reading from Steve Holmes's book, The Quest for the Trinity. The picture is intended to describe the state of the churches in 375 when the book was written, but if anything, the situation had been even more confused 15 years before. And so I say that to say even people reporting on it at the time, there's not guys in black hats and guys in yeah. white hats necessarily, and this really clear, well, these people are Orthodox mm-hmm. and these people are heretics as it gets painted in the later centuries. There was a real controversy going on, and there was a genuine desire to uphold the truth of Scripture, to exegete it appropriately. There was not necessarily a desire to meld Greek philosophical ideas and Christian revelation, because Arius is sometimes painted as a philosophical speculator Mm -hmm. and enemies of orthodoxy are, and that they are abandoning theology to try and please concepts drawn from Greek philosophy. That's more of a character than a reality, it seems. And Orthodox theologians and heretical theologians, as they're later branded, are both drawing on concepts from Greek philosophy to try and make their point. And even the clause, which we'll talk about at some point in the Nicene Creed, the controversial clause of homoousion, is a philosophical term Mm -hmm. and is not uh, welcome by those on either side necessarily into the debate or imports ideas that would seem to be at least extraneous to scripture, if not uh, foreign to them. So here's what I think is, is some of what's happening, is there are two poles that have been established. And this goes back to Origen, a, a century earlier, who was one of the most significant interpreters of Christian scripture, was there was a desire to distinguish yourself from people that had already been branded heretics, like Sibelius mm-hmm. or Sibelians. Um, and so the two poles established in Origen are you can stress and emphasize the unity of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit as one. And in the opposite pole, you can err in the direction of overemphasizing the distinctions between the members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit as different. And so there's errors and heresies that run in both of those directions. And the Sibelists had emphasized the unity of God at the expense of discussing distinct persons within the Trinity which led to the era of modalism, which we've talked about on the show before. And modalism had already been condemned. And so Arius is anxious to move away from Sabellianism to draw distinctions then between the persons of the Trinity and safeguard the monarchy of the Father or his uh, divine preeminence within the Godhead. The phrase slow drift struck me um, in that at one level it's not you know, we're in the period where the creeds are being written, mm-hmm. you know, and they're still sort of trying to figure these sorts of things out. And there are these texts, you know, like we're going to talk about in a bit, I think, like Colossians 1, 15, 16, 17, um, where it talks about Christ being firstborn. And what does that mean? And how do we sort of draw that into this, you know, unity, distinction in the Godhead thing? And so I want to be like, while, while I want to say Arius got it wrong, at the same time, I'm a little bit sympathetic because I, I, I want to give him to some degree the benefit of the doubt that he was trying to figure it out. That he was trying to do a good, he wasn't out, he wasn't out to get, 
you know, just sort of throw a a wrench in the in the yeah. machine. He wasn't out. His, his intentions weren't bad. He was trying. He, he was wrestling with scripture and trying to figure out how to handle it. The church decided he wasn't handling it well, um, and, and that's the result. And the reception, even during his own life, was mixed. He's excommunicated, then he's welcomed back and declared to be orthodox, yeah. and then excommunicated again. And then so punched in the face. <laughs> he <laughs> is not as charactered a wolf in sheep's clothing who diabolically is plotting the division and separation of the church. And he was regarded as a as a good preacher. So here's a man who's become a priest, you know, who has a strong love for God and for Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, is a popular preacher. He doesn't write theological treaties. He writes a lot of songs and things for laity. Back to Matt's earlier point, sum up Arianism in a sentence. So here is the slogan that Arianism flies under. There was a time when he was not. Jesus. Referring to the Son of God, yes. So here's how Arius on the ground, according to David Wilhite in his book, The Gospel According to Heretics, which we take our title from in this series and who was a guest on our first episode. In his chapter on Arius, he says, Once upon a time in Alexandria, Egypt, circa 320 AD, this might be a scene that you would witness because Arius was accused of convincing silly women in the streets of his ideas, main meaning he was a popularizer and desired to write these little catchy tunes that then could promulgate his theology. So, excuse me, ma'am, Arius said to a woman in the market, this infant you're carrying, did this child exist before you conceived it and gave birth to it? No, of course not. What kind of absurd question is this? How about the Son of God, then? Did he exist before the Father begot him? Hmm, I guess that's also absurd. Great answer. I wrote a song about it. Want to hear it? It goes like this. And then here is a translation from Rowan Williams of an actual, some verse that Arius wrote. The one without beginning established the son as the beginning of all creatures. And having fathered such a one, he bore him as a son for himself. He, the son, possesses nothing proper to God in the real sense of propriety. For he is not equal to God, nor yet is he of the same substance. So that's an example of something Arius actually wrote, and then his it's a reimagined presentation of his style of propagating his theology, which was in the marketplace with people yeah, trying that's... to get them to see, you know. So assume... here's a human analogy. Does your son exist before you prior in time? No. Well then how does that work with God's yeah. son? So, so essentially Arius or and, I, and I guess we just will distinguish between Arius and Arianism. But the teaching is that the Son of God is created, begotten by the Father, by by, by God at some point in time. Mm-hmm. Yes, so th- but time is distinguished from creative time that we all know, time space that okay. the world exists in. So there's a time before time. Right. Uh, l- let me introduce the word subordinationism, which is how the Arian doctrine is sometimes discussed today and distinguish, as Wilhite does in his chapter as well, two types of subordinationism, an ontological subordinationism and a chronological subordinationism. Now, ontology just means being or essence, and that is the issue in the Nicene Creed of this phrase that the Father and the Son are of the same essence. In fact, I'll read that section of the Nicene Creed. In one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds. I'll pause there. Arius would agree with that and says as much. 
that the Son of God was begotten of God before all worlds, but he would distinguish that the Son of God is not eternal, not co-eternal with the Father, and not of the same substance as the Father. He is a preeminent midpoint between uncreated deity and created contingent finite matter, cosmos, creation that we and the angels and trees and everything else uh, partake in. Back to the Nicene Creed, it continues, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance, homoousios, with the Father by whom all things were made. So that's the key clause in the Nicene Creed that Arius would disagree with and did disagree with in his writings and was put in essentially to distinguish what became Christian Orthodox teaching on the nature of the Father and the Son from Arian Christology that held that Jesus was a mediatorial creation of the Father, begotten before all ages, but not co-eternal. There's an existence to the Father that the Son does not share in as one substance. And so the ontological subordinationism is the Son is less than or subordinate to the Father in being. He is not of the same substance or essence of the Father, which Athanasius rejected and which the Nicene Creed affirmed. The chronological subordination related to that is that the Son is subordinate or less to the Father in time. Because the Son is begotten of the Father, the Father must proceed and be superior to the Son in time and existence. Therefore, the Father is eternal while the Son is not, but merely everlasting. Hence the slogan I mentioned at the beginning, there was a time when he was not of the Son. I was going to say with ontological subordinationism, if you have that slogan, then what you're doing is you're putting, there was a time the word time in air quotes, right? Because the concept of there being a time outside of eternity doesn't work, right? Yeah. So he would he would affirm, so Arius would affirm two? a pre-existence of the Son of God mm-hmm. to creation, but not an eternal pre-existence right. in the sense that the Father enjoyed. So to clarify, you've given us ontological subordination of the Son and temporal subordination of the Son. Which or both, which of those did Arius put With forward? His, yeah, so yeah. he's. So he's, which one is he guilty of or both? Yeah, he's like a heretical music man. Yeah. Comes uh, into town, right? Yeah, well, both. He rejected both ideas. Okay. That he so rejected that Jesus was of one substance. Yep. The Son of God, excuse me, was of one substance with the Father. He could not affirm that. Mm-hmm. And he also taught that there was uh, subordination in time yeah. where the Father has an unending eternal existence of himself and the son is not does not exist of himself but is begotten of the father at a particular time before time mm-hmm. if you, you can know, imagine such at a thing. some point yeah. in the eternal existence of god before space time and the rest of creation had been created god brought forth his son begot his son and that they would do the same thing with the spirit they would yeah. say the spirit was spirated or breathed out by god in a similar way and that then all were present in Genesis 1 when we get to physical creation because mm-hmm. the Son becomes the supreme agent through whom creation is achieved. So a couple things there. Um, you mentioned the Greek term homoousia, which translated means of same substance. Yes, yeah, substance so, or essence. essence. Same substance. And this, The Aryan alternative um, tells us the significance of one letter. Right, mm-hmm. um, and they they battled over a diphthong, as That's one right. one uh, historian remarked. Homoi 
usia, which means of like substance. Mm -hmm. So the creed eventually adopted the same substance language. Arius would have preferred the Father and the Son are of like substance, but not the same substance. Is that... Yes, however, well, a modified agreement. I don't know if some of that then postdates Arius's life. Oh, yeah. So that's Arianism so as it develops. In his, yes. Yep. So I don't think that he, from what I've read at least, used the term of like substance. Okay. He didn't he didn't like that philosophical language at all, and others objected to it too because it seemed too materialistic mm -hmm. to talk about a substance, a divine substance, and uh, you know what is that? God transcends matter; He's spirit. Mm -hmm. Can you have a divine substance? Um, Interestingly, though, in the in the Greco-Roman world, earlier at least, there were conceptions of material spirits among the Stoics and in various kinds of things. Mm -hmm. So. And it, it's it's sort of interesting to sort of say, well, we're reading, you know, sort of taking Greek dualism and bringing it into um, theological debates. The Greeks weren't quite as dualistic as we usually say they were, <laughs> um, and, and the nor the Romans. And um, so those are complex kinds of things. But so so does that sort of introduce though the di distinction between Arius and Arianism? And are we ready to maybe clarify that to some degree, or can we? I think yeah, so. I think yeah. it does. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about that. Three, there's three intentions behind Arius's theology or his Christology that I'd like to highlight. And the first is to remain faithful or true to biblical teaching. So let's talk about a few passages that are used, have been used, and continue to be used by Jehovah's Witnesses and others to support an Arian understanding of God. Yes, the one that comes to my mind because it is so often used, as you said, with modern Arianism being in Jehovah's Witnesses is John 14, 28, where Jesus makes a statement, very simple, the Father is greater than I. And on the surface value that you have from that reading, how can you argue with that? Certainly, uh, not only is there some kind of role difference between the Father and the Son, which everybody would agree with, you could even take that statement a step further and say there could be an ontological greatness that comes from the Father that the Son does not possess, neither now in time nor in eternity past. So that has been historically a very popular place to go to, is the Gospel of John fourteen twenty eight. Yeah, that's right. You could interpret that in terms of ontological as well as chronological subordination, those two words we just introduced. So the Father is greater than I in being. Mm -hmm. He has an essence of which I do not possess. He is self-existent deity. And I began. I was begotten of him mm -hmm. at a certain time before time. Therefore, the Father is greater to me in being, and he's greater to me in eternal existence. Yeah. So how would one interpret this contra-Arianism? I think it's really important, as with any book, you need to go to the introduction first, because typically the author sets the pace on the language that they use throughout the rest of their book. The Gospel of John is no different. In, in John 1.1, 1, 1, the very first verse that we read, he says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We find out later in verse 14 that the Word incarnated, he came and he dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. And so in the very beginning in John's introduction, he wants his readers to, to make sure they know through the rest of the time that they're reading this gospel, that the word, Jesus, is God. 
if you skip ahead 14 chapters. And just to say, that's an ontological statement. Yes, an ontological statement, right? That, that he These are is, being verbs. That's right, that's right. Here. So then you skip ahead 14 chapters and you come to the Father is greater than I. Um, then if you're taking that as an ontological distinction, then John is incorrect in his introduction and he's inconsistent throughout his gospel. Uh, or there's something more going on in the text than the surface level is going to allow you to, yeah. to interpret. And this is where theologians begin to introduce language of um, ontological trinity and economic trinity. And yeah. Things like so, that. so what is so so what do, I mean? This the bottom line. How how can Jesus say the Father is greater than I when they are ontologically uh, identified both as being God? And I I think the helpful language here is persons, right? The persons yeah. that we see between the Father and the Son. So clearly during the ministry of Christ, one of the largest themes that you see in the gospel is the Son's obedience to the Father. Over and again, he fights temptation. As the author of Hebrews tells us, in every way that we are tempted, um, he puts down the enemy from beginning to end in the wilderness and then in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he goes through in faithful obedience to the Father. And what we're seeing is not only the primary example of our obedience to the Father, but a wonderful representation of the different roles that the different persons of the Trinity play, especially in the life of Christ and in his incarnation in the three decades that he spent physically walking among us. And so when the Father is greater than I comes out of Christ's mouth, then he's saying, I'm doing the Father's will. I'm, I'm accomplishing a mission. I'm on a purpose here. So there's a sense in which the mission, the, the mission finds its source in the Father. Mm -hmm. And the son brings that into history obediently. And, and so there's, there's sort of a, a complementary role being played there. You know, in John 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. Uh, you know, he's, he's, he's trying to describe something that's almost impossible to describe, that's right? right? Yeah. I mean, yep. no one would say, you know, sometimes when I'm preaching on that text, I say, just think about how str what a strange way that is to speak. You know, if I were to come along and say, hi, I am Matt and I'm with Matt, mm -hmm. you know, you'd be calling the sanitarium, right? And, <laughs> you know, no, no one talks like that. And so John is trying to make this point that there is um, both unity and diversity in the one God, in God. And Paul struggles to do that in certain ways in 1 Corinthians 8. And, and so, you know, the, 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 the writers of the New Testament are, they've had this experience of Jesus and they are now trying to figure out how to communicate that in the most sensible way. Yeah. Um, how and, do, how do they, crickets talk about calculus? Yeah. And so they, so John affirms wholeheartedly in, in the first verse, the unity and the ontological unity of the, of the, of the logos and theos. Mm -hmm. The first sentence in the book in the introduction where he sort of lays out his ontological categories in indicative straightforward claims certainly has to be the governing mm -hmm. the governing pat sentence and, and and concepts for how we read a causal you know relative clause that's good so what why should christians care about arius and subordinationism well in short Arianism overemphasizes the Trinity's diversity and unity, shuffling the Son and the Holy Spirit under a completely different ontological category from that of the Father. It teaches that despite Christ being a very important creature, even the firstborn of creation, nevertheless, there was a time when he was not. 
While Arius was a popular teacher and never thought of himself as a wolf in sheep's clothing, he nonetheless set the church on a dangerous course that would have led to an understanding of Christ that diminishes his preeminence and godhood as the second person of the Trinity. We hope you join us next time as the crew continues our discussion on Arius and subordinationism, especially as it relates to the Bible and Jehovah's Witnesses. 